Hello, everybody. Welcome to our weekly VLL broadcast. Hear the word of our Lord from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in the first verse. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh boy, it seems every week now we're getting emails where we're having questions that need to have some dedicated time for answering them. And I am more than happy to provide if you shoot me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. I am happy to answer your emails. And if you would like a personal custom recording, I am more than happy to do that recording for you so you can hear the answer from the Word of God, to the best of my ability, your humble servant here. That said, somebody's taken me up on this general offer, and he has a question on kenosis. He says, hello, pastor. Could you please talk through your understanding on kenosis theory, heresy or not? At a church near a cousin of mine's, they teach kenosis theory. Do you have any advice for someone trying to guard their friends against the influence of kenosis theory? Something, something, forewarned is forearmed. Thank you for all you do. God bless, Jay. Well, Jay, boy howdy have I had some experiences with kenosis. What is kenosis? Well, we read from Philippians chapter 2, and we... Well, it played a little bit of a trick on the listeners. See, in the ESV here, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 of Philippians 2. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When it says, made himself nothing, Literally, in the Greek, it means emptied himself. So some people hearing this in the modern age, usually from American Baptist churches, the theory goes that Jesus Christ, as the Logos, second person of the Trinity, he had to empty himself in order to incarnate in a human body. The belief is that the emptying here that they're speaking of is a metaphysical emptying. Before we get into an evaluation of this theological take and why it is dangerous, I do want to tell you first and foremost, and anybody who is going to embrace kenotic Christology, they have to admit it, 
It is a theological innovation. Nobody was talking kenotic Christology for several, several, several centuries in the church. Classically speaking, since the Council of Chalcedon, the two natures of Christ are understood to communicate with one another, and this emptying is seen as humility given the context of the passage. We will get into that after we talk about the history here. But it is an innovation. And you want to know who first coined the term kenotic Christology? You want to know who introduced it? Oh, it wasn't those feisty American Baptists, even though it's more popular in Baptist circles than other denominations. It wasn't the Baptists, and it wasn't Reconstructionists. It wasn't a cult. Oh, no. And it wasn't those Catholics with their Thomists here trying to find answers to every single question. It wasn't the Reformed. No. No, Kenotic Christology by name comes from a very special individual named Gottfried Tomasius, who he lived up until 1875, and can you guess his denomination? He was Lutheran! Of course! Why? Why does it have to be my denomination that keeps doing this? Can I just complain about that for a second? Lutherans brought liberal Christianity into the world. That's our baby. Guys, we have to admit that. We have to own up to that, that it is the various schools of Lutheranism that gave us the Tübingen School, which basically accuses Paul of being bad. <laughs> Lutheranism gave us liberal Christianity with Julius Wellhausen and Schleiermacher. Lutheranism gave us so, so many bad ideas. Lutheranism, yes, they, they gave us kenotic Christology. Because Gottfried Tomasius was the very first to really talk in the 19th century about a specifically kenotic Christianity. Thank you, Lutherans. No, we can't listen to Spainer. We can't listen to Chemnitz. We can't listen to Luther. Oh no, we have all these questions that we don't answer because we chalk it up to mystery. Time to answer it within the context of a Lutheran seminary. Oh no. Yeah, um, thanks Lutherans. Anyway, so yes, he brings this up. He is uh, one of the Erlangen theologians here. He is a guy that studied philosophy and theology in Erlangen. And he represents that whole neo-Lutheran movement that was semi-important in the 19th and 20th centuries. He tried to bring up an understanding of limited consciousness of Jesus Christ. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, you see, there's a lot of mysteries when it comes to Christology. The reason that the Council of Chalcedon gave us the Chalcedonian definition is because it didn't really answer the question of how the two natures in Christ work. It only gave us boundaries to tell us what doesn't work. We understand that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We understand that these two natures do not blend are not destroyed, and they do not form two persons. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures forever. Now, these two natures communicate. 
normal human beings do not perform miracles. So the classical Christian understanding of this, the classical theology regarding the two natures in Christ, is that there is a communication of the natures. Christ's divine nature grants his human nature to perform miracles, while him still being one person. Do we fully understand how this works? No. In fact, it is guarding the doctrine of the mystery of the hypostatic union that led the um, monothelites to be condemned because they claimed Jesus had only one will. Because they were thinking, well, look, if he's one person, he has one center of consciousness, which means he's only going to have one set of mind, will, and emotions. If we try to build Nestorianism piecemeal, having a two persons to the one Jesus, well, that's heresy. We, we have to answer this puzzle, the monothelites believed. They really wanted to say, well, okay, we have to have a single center of consciousness somewhere in the one Jesus because he is one person. So they go about this, and the moment they said he had one of anything, immediately the entire church condemned Pope Honorius. They condemned all the monothelites, just as they had condemned all the monophysites. They condemned, condemned, condemned in this angry spasm of, you don't touch that mystery. We have communicatio, idiomatum, and that's it. According to the Chalcedonian definition, we don't go any further in this because every time we try, we end up with a heresy. And then some Lutheran guy says, well, no, let's try to explain this. Because when Jesus says no one knows the day nor the hour of the son's return, not even the son, but the father only, I want to explain how Jesus, omnipotent and omniscient God, could possibly not, quote unquote, know something. Hmm, well, there is a, there's a kind of a hidden idea in this that he had one mind or one center of consciousness. Maybe so. Obviously, we do understand that Jesus very well could have had a human mind with his divine mind as the subconscious underneath a lot of these things. He could read people's thoughts. He knew exactly what they were thinking, saying, and feeling. But that doesn't mean that he was always going to be aware of that according to his human nature. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But then he goes a step further, saying, well, maybe Jesus, metaphysically speaking, emptied himself. What do we mean, emptied himself? What do we mean by that? Well, Mr. Tomasius, according to the Christian Cyclopedia of the LCMS, was that Jesus emptied himself of such operative or relative divine attributes as omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience into the view, per Hoffman, that he emptied himself of all divine attributes or that a human personality replaced his divine personality. Of course, that's not what Lutherans believe today, but that was the idea at first with kenosis. What's the problem with that? A, that's not what all kenoticists hold at all. Certain kenoticists will hold that Jesus stopped being God entirely, that we had a binity or two persons to the one God temporarily. Or that one person of the Trinity kind of just went for a nappy poo and stopped really being divine while Jesus was walking around in his 
fleshly garb. Other canonicists will say, no, 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 that's not what, what we're really getting at here. What we mean is that Jesus just laid aside all of his divine privileges to do miracles and to act as though he were omnipotent and omniscient, so that instead it's the Holy Spirit performing all these miracles through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then other canonicists say, oh, no, 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 it's just... It really is the communicatio idiomatum, where the two natures of Christ are communicating, but I'm just, I'm just emphasizing the humility of Jesus. He emptied himself of status. We might notice that he was born in a manger, very, very humble. So I'm really just saying what you're saying, Lutherans, that it's a, it's a measure of humility that St. Paul is talking about here, not something metaphysical. The first, very first problem here is that kenoticism, like its name, is an empty doctrine. People hear the word kenotic, they look at Philippians 2 verse 7 and decide, well, in lieu of a definition, I think I'm just going to make one up and call it kenotic Christology. There's a lot of people out there that would call themselves kenotic Christians while having radically different understandings of what kenosis means between them and other supposed kenotic Christians. So it's an empty, formless doctrine that has its own kenotic problems. But that said, we do have to respond to the issue of kenotic doctrine here, classically stated, that Jesus somehow emptied himself of operative or relative divine attributes, such as omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience, according to Thomasius and Canis and Guess and Huffman and all these other dweebs. Here is the problem. God doesn't change. Ever. Does he say he changes? No. In fact, the Bible is very, very clear on this. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Malachi, one of my favorite verses ever. It is the last book of the Old Testament, and God gives us a very, very plain statement here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's reread that first part. I, the Lord, do not change change. He does not change. James will reassert some of this by saying that in God there is no shadow of turning. Samuel, in his discussion with Saul, says, God is not like a man to change. God doesn't change. He is, as the classical theologians would call it, immutable, unchanging. God is always God. God never stops being God. And if God never changes, he does not stop being God. He does not stop being divine, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. All of the omnis, all of the divine attributes are eternally his. There is no situation, there is no condition, there is no counterfactual by which God would ever, ever, ever change. Now, is each person of the Trinity fully God? Yes, we confess that every single Sunday in any creed we confess. Even the Apostles' Creed gives you a whole lot of information about how each person of the Trinity is fully God. End of story. 
period. And is Jesus God? The second person of the Trinity, is he God and fully God? Yes. So therefore, Jesus Christ's divine nature never, ever, ever, ever changes. Period. End of story. The canonicist might try to say, oh, no, no, no. His nature didn't change. It was just emptied. That's change. They might reply to that, no, 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 it's not change to the divine nature. You don't understand. It's just putting it aside so that he had a human mind overtaking the divine. That's change. No, you just don't understand. Jesus had two minds. That's not something for you to determine, is it? Well, you know, you don't understand. Jesus laid aside his divine attributes. That's change. That is one person determining a change upon his nature. And then they might say, well, no, what we're saying is he just wasn't using it. So let's now pivot to the charismatic understanding of canonicism. Because that's what they'll say. Eventually they will pivot to, no, you just don't get it. Jesus just didn't use his divine attributes. That's what we mean by emptying. He didn't change his nature. He's still fully God in accordance with the Chalcedonian definition, the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man, one person, two natures forever. No intermingling or changing of the divine nature with the human nature, period. Fine, we confess that, we confess that. Yeah, they, they went into straight up heresy trying to accuse the Bible of lying and accusing God of lying when he says he does not change. But, oh boy, now they get to pivot. Now they get to move those goalposts. And they'll say what we mean is Jesus just didn't use any of his power. He didn't use any of his divine nature. And now we get to the third problem with canonicism. If the claim of the canonicist is just, well, Jesus didn't use his divine power. And that's what we mean by emptying. He was so humble that he made sure to live as a man, consciously. That means that all of his miracles were done by the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? That's what they'll say. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Jesus performed all of his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit who enabled him. Every single one? Oh, yeah. Every single one. That's what they'll say. They'll go, yeah, he healed the lepers and gave sight to the blind because of the Holy Spirit. He read the thoughts of others and understood their intentions because the Holy Spirit is informing him. Uh, you know, the divine mind acting as a subconscious mind, so to speak, so the human nature can really, truly, authentically interact with the human material world as a real material human being. For after all, we all confess that Jesus Christ is fully man, right? Right. That's when you ask them, so what about the atonement? Dying for the sins of all of humanity? Is that, um, is that a miracle by the Holy Spirit? Am I forgiven by the Holy Spirit working through Jesus? Well, now you've just undone the entirety of the atonement, haven't you? Because if Jesus was just some guy, with, with God absolutely being his other nature, sure, but we really are looking at some guy dying on a cross, and it's the Holy Spirit saying, now because of this death by my power, I unleash forgiveness for all of the sins of the world, then you run into some serious problems. You run into basically the same exact problems that the Apollinarians ran into. Because the Apollinarians claimed that Jesus was the divine Logos inhabiting an empty, mindless, meat puppet human sack that died on the cross. Now guess what? 
If a meat sack died on a cross for you, you are not forgiven of your sins. You could take a pig carcass and nail it to the cross and none of your sins are forgiven. That's the problem with Apollinarianism. It undoes the atonement. Canonicism, if it's taken to mean that Jesus just never used any of his divine power and none of his divine status ever counted towards anything he did, then you end up with a situation where his human nature died on a cross for you. And it's really the Holy Spirit that ended up bringing about your forgiveness. Now, we are called the Christian Church, not the Holy Spirit Church. Jesus won your forgiveness. He did that. Otherwise, the Bible would not tell you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. It would have told you to put your trust in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we would not hear about Jesus dying for our sins, as the book of 1 Corinthians says quite succinctly when St. Paul gives us the first of the early church creeds. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. I also received this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It's not Jesus dying for your sins if it is actually the Holy Spirit using Jesus' death for our sins. Canonicism, understood as Jesus just never using his omnipotence, omniscience, or his divine power, or anything like that, that ends up becoming Holy Spirit atonement. The Holy Spirit being the main actor in the entirety of the gospel, and Jesus being relatively negligible. You have decided that your preference is for one member of the Trinity, and one member of the Trinity only for your salvation. This negates the Father sending Jesus because the Father might as well have just sent the Holy Spirit to do all of this. Why didn't the Holy Spirit die on a cross for you? That's a big problem. So, of course, the canonicists will say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the one miracle that Jesus performed by his own power. Oh, so he just stopped emptying himself at the same moment as he releases the cry of contrition. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hmm, that's a problem. Because now you're saying Jesus just by his own power after emptying himself and being humbled in the form of a servant, what's called Christ's state of humiliation, not embarrassment, humiliation, but humility, what they'll say is, well, yeah, that's the one time he actually did any of these miracles. That may be his resurrection. Because after all, the Bible does say the Father resurrected Jesus and Jesus resurrected Jesus. Okay, okay. Well, there's another problem. Even if you claim this is the one exception, that Jesus laid aside all of his divine privileges and powers temporarily with this, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. Let's go back to Colossians here. This is what Colossians says about Jesus. Starting in chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Mm. Mm. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did Jesus quit doing that upon the kenosis? Did he quit holding the universe together? Did he stop being the rational principle behind literally all of reality in the entirety of the universe? That just, we just kind of let the universe go off in its own direction for a while. Is that what we're going to say? For 33 years, that's, that's how it worked. Just uh, hope for the best and hope that one plus one still equaled two. Well, that doesn't work, does it? And Hebrews, by the way, the book of Hebrews is also going to say something very, very similar here. From Hebrews chapter 1, in the third verse, it says, speaking of our Lord Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus holds the entirety of everything together. This is one of the reasons that St. John will call our Lord Christ the Logos, because the Logos is not just word, even though that is the best translation for it. It also is Jesus Christ, E. Michael Jones style, holding all of logic and reason together. The universe does not work without Jesus making it work. He is the power of God, the dunamis of God. If you drop a pen onto the ground, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, is the one who by his very existence and upholding of all things makes that pen drop to the floor. If he was not doing that, if he fully emptied himself of all divine privileges and or attributes, then if you tried to drop that pen, it might explode. It might fly up into the stratosphere. You might turn into a donkey after you try to drop that pen because the rules and logic of this universe don't work without Jesus, who is fully divine. If people want to say that he laid all that aside, upholding the entirety of creation together, temporarily, just 33 years, right? Then we're saying that we just kind of played craps with the universe and left it all up to chance. Is, are we really willing to say that? Say until Jesus took back and started exercising his divine privileges on the cross, are we really willing to say God left everything up to chance for 33 years? I'm not willing to say that. I mean, I guess you can if you're going to be that weirdo. But I'm going to go with here's what the Bible says about Jesus and him being fully divine means that yes, one plus one still equaled two during the entirety of his earthly ministry. So let's go back real quick to Philippians chapter two and let's look at what the passage is actually saying. From the first verse, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is about humility. This is not about metaphysics. Jesus Christ being equal with God, being the Son of God, being divine, being God himself, had every right to come into this earth and demand that everybody come and grovel before him, to receive every single crown that humanity could manufacture and just pile them on top of his head. He could have had every single creature bow down to him, give the rocks legs so they could bow down and worship him and sing songs to them. But did Jesus do that? No, he did not. Even though he is fully divine and even though he is the king of the universe, he decided instead to be born as a servant, to be born in a dirty little manger to serve you, to make atonement for your sins. This passage is not talking about his divine attributes, whether or not they were scuffled away in a corner or something like that. This passage is talking about how he did things. And out of the purity and love that he has for you, he decided to be humble. Because if he came like this, like a king, a divine king demanding worship from every creature right then and there, he wouldn't have died for you. Case closed on that one. That's what St. Paul is talking about. That is the emptying there. He emptied himself of a status. He decided to forego his right to have a super fantastic welcome. And now that doesn't even stop all of creation from recognizing it, because after all, we do have the wise men, the magi, bringing presents to him. Yes, there is indeed honor given to Christ in his incarnation, but he's still born in a dirty, smelly little manger, and he still grew up being a carpenter's son, and he still died on a cross for you instead of deciding to just conquer all of the peoples of the earth. That's what St. Paul is getting at. Now that said, you're going to ask, is kenoticism automatically soul-damning, ugly heresy that anybody holds to it is going to hell? No. It is in its lighter forms where people say he just kind of put away his power for a bit until it was time to be nailed to a cross. That's heterodoxy. You can still trust in Jesus for your salvation, even though you will be dead wrong as to how he performed miracles here on earth. You can still trust in him. As for those people who were temporarily Arian heretics, where they believe that for 33 years there was only two persons to, to the Trinity, it was no longer a Trinity for a bit, and Jesus was just some guy. No, that is so warped that I would say that is not Christian at all. It is so beyond the pale of understanding and scriptural uh, exegesis here of every single passage regarding Christ's nature that you can't really, as a Christian, arrive to that, nor can you get a real atonement from that, in addition to the problems that that has with sin, because then they're saying, well, Jesus was just such a perfect dude. You know, he formerly God for a while, but then he, he became God again. Uh, you know, after all, we have him being really cool and perfect and nice and stuff. The problem with that is that opens the door straight to Pelagianism. Because if Jesus could be that perfect as just some dude temporarily, then um, so can you. And I'm sure there's many canonicists that try to reach that conclusion, and then they drive themselves insane doing the Pelagius bit. Great. Thanks, guys.
And as for the canonicists who try to um, spin their wheels like Mr. Lutheran Tomasius trying to answer questions and come at weird conclusions, don't dig too far. Don't. You're trying to answer things that are mysteries, that have been mysteries now for 1,600 years. Ever since Chalcedon, we've admitted that there's a lot of mystery to the natures in Christ. Let it be a mystery. We hold to the hypostatic union. We hold to the communication of the natures. We don't go further. Again, maybe if you were to speculate hard enough, you could get it right. But chances are you're not going to. Chances are, like Nestorius, like Apollinarius, like Eutyches, you are going to end up being a heretic that destroys the gospel. Don't be that guy. We can be humble about this, as we are with election and other matters, and say, I don't know, here's what the Bible tells us is true, so I'm just going to say that that's true. <laughs> but that's it. And obviously, if you're going to be in a conversation with a canonicist, don't like yell and scream at them, but they need to know that their doctrine is wrong. And it's potentially dangerous heresy. And if it's not heresy, if they're holding to the, the squishy form of it, that's more like heterodoxy, it's still dangerous because people will still come up with heresies from there. So, don't be canonicist, guys. Let's hold to the Bible with simple faith. And when we don't know something, when it is a mystery, let's just say, I don't know, but I'm going to trust in Jesus. Sound good? Amen and amen.